From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, often called the nation's report card, and what its latest results tell us about American students. What's happening is kids at the bottom of the distribution are falling further behind. And that's replicated uh, not just in math, it's replicated across the board. We welcome Harvard University professor and nationally recognized testing policy expert, Daniel Koritz. He joins CPRI Executive Director Jonathan Sapovitz to break down the latest assessment data and its implications for student outcomes, equity, and education policy. You know, if you don't know what the problem is, you can't possibly solve it effectively. And the strategy we've taken is, oh, they know how to do it. We'll just tell them that their scores weren't high enough. It's absurd. We have to stop pretending that we can ignore what happens in classrooms and simply set targets. Courts also discusses the potential value in the future of the assessment in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't think we'll learn anything from an administration in 2021. I think we'll learn a lot, and I think it's going to be very distressing what we learn if we administer it in 2022. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, the Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research in Education, headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Dan Koritz, the Henry Lee Shattuck Research Professor of Education at the Harvard Grad School of Education. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Delighted to be with you. So today, we're going to be discussing the latest results of the NAEP, or National Assessment of Educational Progress, um, which is given to a representative sample of American students to gauge student knowledge in a variety of subjects. It's often called the nation's report card. And today, we're going to talk about the 2019 report card, which looked at reading and math in uh, for 12th graders. And these results weren't what we were hoping for, not something we want to hang on the fridge. So to start, can you walk us through um, how NAEP is conducted and, you know, how we arrive at these um, statements about um, U.S. student performance? Sure. Currently, and this started as of 2003, the national assessment is one large stratified national sample. It's very large, and that's worth keeping in mind because even small fluctuations in scores are statistically significant. Uh, It's given to um, a national, well, the math and and reading assessments are given to nationally representative samples of fourth and eighth graders every two years and 12th graders uh, less frequently. Uh, the stakes uh, attached to the assessment are nominally zero, that there are no uh, consequences. In fact, by law, there, there are no permanently kept logs of the students who participate. We don't know who they are. Um, in fact, it's a little less uh, low stakes than that, as people are quite worried about their state standing on NAEP. And so people do circulate, uh, state education agencies sometimes do circulate materials to uh, let people know what the standards include, and so on. But basically, it is the single best uh, uh, indicator we have of overall trends and progress for American kids. And um, how did high schoolers do in 2019? Well, I think it's better actually to put it in, in the context of the fourth and eighth grade results as well, because all of them are bad news. Basically, there has been nothing but stagnation 
for uh, oh, a dozen years or so, and in some cases much longer than that. Uh, there's never been um, much good news in the, in the 12th grade. The good news that got people excited was in fourth grade mathematics up until, oh, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago or 12 years ago. But basically, since then, things have stagnated if you look at overall performance. If you start taking it apart and looking at the performance of different groups, it becomes a little more complicated. But the overall um, picture is just one of stagnation. So, you know, if, I, if I'm looking at the scores, so in, in 2019 in, in mathematics, at least in 12th grade, the scale score was 150, and it's kind of varied from, you know, up and down a point or two um, in reading on a scale of, same scale of 500, it looks like. Scores were 285, and, but, it, but it seems like fluctuations are really small, like a point or two. So what can we make of these, what seem to be small fluctuations? I'd ignore them for the most part. I mean, what you have to keep in mind is that the standard deviation of these scales is quite large. So, for example, in grade 8 math, the change in scores between 2017 and 2019 were less than three hundredths of a standard deviation. And basically what that means is that the median kid in 2019 would have scored at the 49th percentile rank in 2017. It's really trivial. And in fact, if you go back to just to underscore the amount of... um, stagnation, if you compare the 2019 scores to 2007, a full dozen years ago, it's still only one percentile rank difference. Uh, so these, I, I would say, put them out of mind. The real answer is that nothing much has been happening. And is that also in terms of the, um, the distribution around the, around the mean? Has the standard deviations changed? Well, the standard deviations haven't changed much. That's normally the case, but they have changed a little. And you may recall, oh, say four years ago, five years ago, a lot of the um, people in our field who were positive about the impact of No Child Left Behind and test-based reform in general made the claim that while it may not have raised overall performance very much in some cases, essentially not at all in reading, it was helping kids at the bottom. And uh, when I published uh, the testing charade, what, four years ago, I argued that that was a misreading of the data and that there was, in fact, no progress, no uh, appreciable progress of that sort. If you look at the more recent data, it's clear that the reverse is true. What's happening is kids at the bottom of the distribution are falling further behind. Uh, and this is really clear. It's, you can see it in the 12th graders, but it's really clear if you look at, say, fourth graders in mathematics, where you see that the um, kids at the 90th percentile have been going up. Not hugely, but it's noticeable they've been going up. Kids at the bottom, the 10th percentile, have been going down. And that's replicated uh, not just in math, it's replicated across the board. Uh, Basically, what's been happening is um, that kids at the bottom have been falling further behind. Actually, it's more striking if you look at grade 8 math, where the 10th percentile has really dropped, as has the 25th percentile. So to zoom out a little bit, the message I take away from NAEP is that what we have been doing in schools for the last couple of decades has not worked in terms of improving overall performance, which is goal number one. And it's been a dismal failure in terms of improving the equity of educational outcomes, which was its primary rationale, or it's at least one of its two primary rationales. It just has not worked. It's interesting because like, we can look at the results, um, and then there's a lot of 
hypotheses that would explain these differences. And some of the stuff that I read in preparation for this, um, there were hypotheses about how the advances in our understanding of reading haven't worked their way entirely through the education system yet, or that the 2009 recession might have caused a, a decline in, in education spending that was now being picked up on in subsequent years on NAEP, or um, something that, for example, that there are fewer dropouts in high school, and so more kids are taking the test, which may be um, depressing some of the scores, but that may not be a bad thing. Do you put any stock in any of these hypotheses? Well, as hypotheses, absolutely. Uh, I, I should say I have always taken the grade 12 tests with a grain of salt. Um, it's the testing window is from January to March of every year. And, um, I think most of us know what's going on in the spring of senior year. It's very hard to get uh, seniors to pay attention to anything, let alone to a test that isn't going to have any consequences for them or their school. So I, I've always been a little skeptical. And that's for that reason, I think it is. Well, let me say it's another reason why we should look at the 12th grade results in the context of the 4th and 8th grade results and to look for similarities between them. Now, there are all sorts of other things that are going on. And to my knowledge, no one has tried to systematically disentangle them and see how plausible these alternative explanations are. I mean, I, you may know that's how I started my career many, many, many years ago, looking at trends up until the 19, early 1980s. But I haven't seen that done recently. But whatever else is going on, it's clear that there has not been a major positive effect of educational change. You know, so so one of the things that we've noted is the lack of consequences of these of these tests, which might reduce motivation to um, to put in good effort and to try to encourage performance. Um, which way do you think that cuts? Is that does that reduce potential bias or any kind of of efforts to influence performance? Do, so, do you think it's more valid um, to have a a test that has lower no stakes versus a test that clearly kids are and teachers are motivated to try and perform towards? Well, on balance, yes, but it's actually a more complicated question. So first, let's think about the motivational problem in a little more detail. If the question were simply, might eighth graders perform better if this were not a test dropped out of the sky that's going to disappear again? Perhaps. And there are a bunch of studies, there aren't many, but there have been studies going on for a long time that try to use things like paying for scores to see how much motivation matters. And the answer generally has been a little, it does matter somewhat. But when you're talking about trends, which is what I'm talking about, uh, motivation is a much more unlikely culprit. Because if the trend is flat and should be up, Let's say the trend really should be up and you want to blame the fact that it's flat on motivation. What you have to argue is that motivation has been getting worse over time. And I don't see any evidence that that's true. Now, that's one side of the equation. The other side is what to make of higher stakes tests. And it's crystal clear that the amount of emphasis we've placed on high stakes tests has created large biases. I'm not, not the order of magnitude, well, let me put it, much larger than the ones that um, seem to be caused by low motivation. There are studies that show biases of up to 75 hundredths of a standard deviation in the scores uh, are obtained on high-stakes tests. And uh, 
there could be a middle ground. There could be a middle ground of tests that matter, but uh, matter to a degree that's more reasonable and that doesn't have the upward bias that we've seen in our tests. But in our system, which is enormously test-driven, even after ESSA replaced No Child Left Behind, uh, the bigger risk is that we're being misled by high-stakes tests, not by lower-stakes tests. Given that the U.S. is such a decentralized system, um, what are the benefits and and drawbacks of of trying to produce a national trend of performance, given all the variability among states about their efforts? Well, it all it all depends on the conclusion you want to draw. Originally, the test was designed just to give us a national picture, not to give us. Um, information that states could act on. And in fact, in the original national assessment design, there were no data at a a finer grain level than for uh, regions. It was a deliberate decision not to provide test level, uh, state level data. And it was just to give us some picture that might be relevant, for instance, for thinking about even economic policy. This is after all one economy. The push to provide state level data started in the 1980s with the Alexander James report. Uh, and at the time, uh, some of us expressed concern that that could ironically undermine the national assessment by giving state uh, departments of education incentives to find ways to teach to it, which has, in fact, happened to some degree. We don't know how much, but it has happened to some degree. But also, it's I think it is useful, even though that was a risk, I think it is useful for states to have some notion of how they stack up against other parts of the country and what that implies for what they need to do, how drastic their reforms need to be. That said, if you follow test data, uh, there's nothing in the state comparisons that that's at all surprising. I mean, if the state comparisons had started showing that Louisiana and Mississippi were outscoring Minnesota, those of us who followed this sort of data would have said something's wrong with this test because nothing has ever shown that before. Uh, but still, I think it's some, it, it can be useful for, particularly for states that are not doing as well as they Think they ought to be doing to have some way to quantify that, and and is it also useful f- from a state perspective to contrast performance on our state tests versus on NAEP? Well, I wish they would do that more. Again, the issue there is trends because, um, well, I'll just use as an example one that I gave to students in a class at Harvard last week. Uh, New York State started a new relatively high stakes testing program in two thousand six. And uh, there was no way to compare cross-sectionally the 2007 scores on that test to the 2007 NAEP. They're not on the same scale. There's no linking, right? They're just numbers. But what you can compare is the trends. You can say, all right, let's just start, uh, set 2006 as zero on both, on both tests and see whether they more or less tell you the same story about changes over time. And the answer is no, they did not show remotely similar uh, things about change over time. In eighth grade math, for example, the national assessment scores went up about one-sixth as much as state test scores. And that's actually, since uh, your focus is really on policy, that's a really interesting case for policy because the city, New York City, and the state took uh, diametrically um, opposed positions in responding to that news the city's position, Joel Klein's position was, I don't care what's on NAEP. The state tests tests what we care about, and that's going up. Uh, the state, uh, David Steiner was the commissioner at the time, and Merrill Tisch, the then chancellor of the Board of Regents, went to the press and said, 
Uh, this shows that there is something fundamentally wrong with our testing program because scores are clearly inflated. And they actually made some changes to the program. My response to Joel's position was, you tell parents what content in the national assessment they should not be thinking about when you tell them math is getting better. Or tell employers in Hoboken why they shouldn't be concerned that your kids are doing well on the state test, but not on something else. It's an untenable position. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to um, imagine what kind of a policy response might be made to the major findings of NAEP, which are generally flat and stagnating performance. And then, unfortunately, what seems like and it rises on the on the high end of the scale and declines on the low end of the scale, which obviously seems to be exacerbating inequalities. And so, I'm trying to uh, imagine what you know what macro policy considerations might be made from these kind of of results. Is that the way that policymakers will look at NAEP and try and think about you know like um, economic infusions or beyond education interventions? Well, I hope so. I'm not entirely optimistic because, frankly, the field has been fairly bullheaded about this in the past. But I think it's really clear. I think it was clear uh, several years ago that what we've been doing just hasn't worked. I, I mean, I published a book saying exactly that four years ago before we had these last two assessment cycles. Uh, and I think we owe it to kids to admit that and start thinking about what we might do differently. There were a handful of people when we started down the road of high-stakes testing a long time ago, George Medaus, Laurie Shepard, I was one, Bob Lynn, who said, this probably is not going to work. Uh, and I, I'm rather uh, distraught that I was right. It just has not worked. Uh, it, it didn't make sense that it would work, but it, it has not worked. So I think what we ought to do is step back. We have, in some sense, an opportunity. We've had four years of complete disruption in which our, our attention has been turned to other things. It really hasn't been anywhere nearly as much focus on what you're calling the macro level of education reform. So I think we should take the opportunity be, uh, between the fact that we have to start again and we have this, I think, really discouraging news and ask the big questions about what we might do that's different from what we've done over the past 20 years. And I think we have examples we can... Uh, things done elsewhere that we can try, they won't necessarily transplant well to our fragmented system. But I think one of them, I'll give you just two, one of them is that we have, uh, for a long time, since the early 1990s, set performance goals completely arbitrarily with absolutely no evidence that the targets we were setting were feasible by legitimate means. And in many cases, they were not feasible by legitimate means. They were much, we were calling for change to be made much more rapidly and much more consistently over time than people actually can do it. And so what are the choices? The choices were to fail or to cut corners or to cheat. And teachers did all three of those collectively. It was absolutely predictable. It's like going into a hospital and saying, we know nothing about cardiac medicine, but we want your fatality rate from, from heart attacks to drop by 30% in the next five years. Just make it, that's what we're doing. We're just making up numbers. So step number one is if we're going to set performance targets for people, they ought to be uh, things that we can, uh, we can argue persuasively are reasonable and obtainable by legitimate means. The second, which is even bigger, I think, is that we have to stop pretending that we can ignore what happens in classrooms and simply set targets. And many, many years ago, Linda Darling-Hammond called 
uh, high stakes testing, the kick the dog harder notion of school <laughs> reform. Uh, and she was exactly on the money. You know, we basically, the, the underlying premise is somebody either knows how to do what they should do or can, can be, can figure it out if we just push them hard enough. And, th and that wasn't true. It just wasn't true. Um, we didn't give them good supports. We didn't revamp teacher training. Uh, uh, until recently, we didn't even look at what was happening in classrooms. Now we look, but in a very constrained way. And there are reasons for that. I mean, one reason for that is because teacher evaluations were historically a failure in this country, and, and subjective judgment in schools is a very tough thing to do. But the fact is, what we did instead didn't work, right? And we've seen year after year, it does not work. So I want to see whether we can find tenable ways to pay attention to what's happening in classrooms and actually improve what's happening in classrooms rather than relying on external factors like test scores or market pressure. And actually, let me add one thing there. The people who are not enthusiastic about test-based accountability were in many cases enthusiastic about market-based reforms. Uh, but asking whether market-based reforms work is kind of like asking whether medicine works. It's simply too general a question. Uh, and we set up a system in which um, it was unlikely to work because the public debate, we created a public debate about the quality of education or nominally about the quality of education that was in fact only about test scores. And so market-based competition became competition for test scores, just as public schools were desperately trying to raise test scores. Uh, so I, you know, if we want to use market-based reforms, I would do it the way it's done, or at least think about doing it the way it's done in, say, the Netherlands. The Netherlands is substantially more market-based than anything we've seen in the United States. Uh, there's a constitutional prerogative to establish schools in, in, in the Netherlands. But parents have real information. It's not just chasing test scores. The Netherlands actually has more of a tradition of standardized testing than most countries in Europe. But the inspection reports, which are made available on the on the web to any parent who wants to look at them, don't just look at test scores. They they the inspectors have a long list of things that they are supposed to watch in schools and report on. And I think that's one of the key things we have to change. We have to look at more than test scores. We and we have to remember that the people who designed this technology in the first place were adamant that they are not an exhaustive measure of the goals of education. They are, as they put it, specialized supplementary information. This is really interesting, the pathway that we're heading down here, because I think that there is a perspective that test results are supposed to shine lights on, on what we're talking about, which are the supports and the instructional technologies that are used to produce performance. Um, and somehow we've gotten into this cycle, and maybe you can help me understand how we can get out of this cycle, of, of doubling down on the test when we see poor test performance, right? Which seems to be the strategy that we used with No Child Left Behind. So I guess my um, frustration here is, is how to get out of that cycle. Right. I, I think the first step is to recognize that we ought to be using tests as the starting point if we're going to use them for accountability at all, as a starting point for accountability, not as the end. You know, if you see that a school has, all you see in a state capital usually is that a school has, uh, let's say, consistently low scores, you have no idea why. None, right? The logical thing to do would be to say, um, and actually this is something the Dutch inspectorate started doing 10 or 15 years ago, saying, all right, if there are low scores, somebody has to go in and find out why, 
and then you can design an intervention to address it. You know, is it is it a, a school that has low scores because the staff are poorly trained or poorly motivated or is discipline a problem or is transience a problem or is it mostly kids who don't speak English? You know, if you don't know what the problem is, you can't possibly solve it effectively. And the strategy we've taken is, oh, they know how to do it. We'll just tell them that their scores weren't high enough. It's absurd. I mean, imagine if in healthcare we did that. And we said, you know, we know that, that um, this, this practice has bad outcomes, but we don't know why. We don't care why, right? Maybe they have sicker patients or maybe the doctors are lazy or who knows. We'll just tell them to make their numbers better. It doesn't make any sense. So th- I think that's the starting point. The other is to recognize that one te- test can't serve many masters. So the national assessment is really well designed for what it's doing, which is to provide an ongoing monitoring system. If you want to look at the effects of an instructional intervention, you ought to use a test that's tailored to that purpose. And that may well be very different in one district or state than in another. These are um, both wise and very pragmatic suggestions, this idea of, of using the test as a starting point, not an ending point, and also trying to think of different ways of using those technologies to try to provoke more questions. Um, Dan, are you worried about how sensitive um, COVID-19 is going to be on NAEP and in subsequent administrations? I think it's going to devastate the next administration. And one thing that's interesting is that uh, states, which is not where I expected the progress to be, but many states are already substantially backing down since they can't stop testing under ESSA, uh, they are taking steps to, to basically to downgrade the importance of the results for the next cycle. I don't have a list in front of me, but one state, for instance, which uh, uses them as uh, some of the tests as end of course tests has reduced the percentage of the final grade that will be attributable to the test to 0.01%, uh, to 1%. I, I just think there's no way. You know, we learned national assessment actually was what taught people this. Back in the early, uh, well, late 1980s, uh, ETS redesigned the national assessment in time for the 1984 assessment. And in 1986, there was a precipitous drop in reading scores, particularly among uh, high school kids. Uh, There were two panels set up to look into this, one by ETS and one by the government, by the education department. And they both came to the same conclusion, which is that it was not real. It was a response to changes in the administration of the tests. Right? That's what started the long-term assessment that never changes or, or almost never changes. So if that kind of administrative change can sometimes produce total disruption of, of trend lines, imagine what the bedlam of this year is going to do. I mean, we don't even know now how many kids can be in school uh, in the spring. We, I mean, we just we don't know which kids will be in school. We don't know uh, whether they will have time for an assessment. Uh, because if they're in hybrid learning, they, the teachers may be very reluctant to give up instructional time for this. It's just going to be chaotic. So I think, and I'm not the only one who says this, at least one member of NAGBI has been saying the same thing, that uh, NAGBI should go to Congress and request permission to delay it the next administration for a year. Uh, that's, what, that's what I would do. I don't think we'll learn anything from an administration in 2021. I think we'll learn a lot, and I think it's going to be very distressing what we learn if we administer it in 2022. And so is sentiment um, leaning towards postponing or or persisting? 
I don't know. I, my guess is, given what's been going on the last month, that this is the last thing in Congress's mind. Uh, <laughs> so this but, will have to come from Congress. Uh, I believe there's a statutory obligation to do the math uh, grade four and grade eight and the reading grade four and grade eight every two years. I mean, one option is to do it and just not pay a lot of attention to it, but that's that's unlikely to happen. You know, I do think the national assessment is going to be extremely important in 2022 or 2023 if we can't delay, because I think the disruption in state test uh, trend lines is going to be very hard to interpret. And the reason for that is that we have a small amount of research, it's not a lot, but it's quite consistent, uh, that suggests that the kids who get the most inappropriate test prep and suffer the most inflation of test scores are disadvantaged kids. Those are also the kids uh, that we now see in at least preliminary reports, are suffering the most from the disruption of COVID. So ironically, the fact that they were coached the most may obscure the extent of their real decline in performance. So I think we're really going to need a national assessment to tell us in the aggregate just how bad the equity effects of COVID uh, will have been by that time. And I think they're going to be very, very large. Yeah, I think it is very important that we understand the consequences of what's happening right now. Um, Dan, this has been such a fantastic conversation, and we we started with NAEP. We talked a lot about some of the things surrounding testing and some of the big implications of this. And so, you know, the, I think this is a testament to the fact that NAEP can can catalyze very um, interesting conversations about the direction of education and um, the contributions of different facets of our education system. So Dan Kortz, who's the uh, Henry Lee Shattuck Research Professor of Education at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, You can follow us on Twitter at CPreHub. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.